This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to delivering new media resources on issues in Reformed theology. Visit us online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 126. Today we bring to you Christ and Culture Round 3 with Nelson Klosterman. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 126. My name is Camden Busey. Today we are continuing our Christ and Culture series. We have sought to bring together several different perspectives on the subject, and today we share the closing remarks from Nelson Klosterman, who teaches at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. If you'd like to hear each episode from rounds one and two with Nelson Klosterman and our other participants, Bill Dennison, Daryl Hart, and Doug Wilson, please visit reformedforum.org. There you will find our complete Christ and Culture series as well as hundreds of other episodes on various issues in Reformed theology. But before we begin, let me mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported, and it does cost some money to produce and to distribute all of our programs. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Reform Forum, please help us continue to produce content like this Christ and Culture series by sending us a donation to Reformed Forum at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Any support would be greatly appreciated, even if it's just 2 3 4 $5. Anything can go a long way in terms of covering our bandwidth costs and our server costs and any equipment expenditures we have. Your support is greatly appreciated, and we thank everyone who supports us already in what we're doing at Reform Forum. And so with that, here is Nelson Klosterman. Thank you for this uh, opportunity, Camden, to respond to uh, the discussion that's been taking place about uh, Christ and culture or Christianity and culture. Um, I'm going to respond with, uh, in, in particular, regarding seven areas that uh, number of completeness that we all like. Um, the first area has to do with the Canons of Dort. I appreciate Dr. Dennison's positive reference to my invoking Canons of Dort, uh, third and fourth main points of doctrine, Article 4. And uh, I, I remain puzzled in view of the fact that this is a conversation that uh, those to whom I've addressed this concern chose not to respond to it. What I mean is particularly the second full sentence in Canons of Dort, third and fourth main points, Article 4, that goes like this. But this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him, which with which we all agree, every one of us. But then it goes on to say, so far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. So there are two particular areas, I think, of disagreement or concern regarding natural law, um, natural light, remnants of the image of God, etc. No one of us denies the existence of natural law. No one of us denies the, uh, the source of natural law, being God himself. I think the areas of disagreement involve 
the ability to apprehend the content of natural law, given the noetic effects of sin on the human mind. And secondly, I think we disagree with regard to the capacity, the human capacity, for following natural law, a right, as the canons of Dort puts it, even in things civil, um, matters of nature and society. So we need to converse a little bit more about this, and we need to come to some clarity in light of the confessional statement here. If we're going to um, advocate, if we're going to advance a what's being called today a reformed understanding of natural law, then I repeat my plea that people do business with this matter of the confession, that they that they evaluate it, they integrate it in their understanding of natural law. As far as I know, uh, as far as I can tell by reading Calvin and other other reformers, there is natural law and natural light, and its function is negative, not positive. The negative function is to render all men without excuse. Whatever else we want to do with it, fine, we can talk about the positive contributions of unbelievers and the unregenerate, etc., etc. But I, st- I side here with Calvin in terms, um, as I understand him, in terms of understanding common grace, natural law, natural light, as having a divine intention to render people with, and keep them accountable, rendering them without excuse. So that's the first comment um, that, that has to do with um, let's really genuinely talk about these things and not ignore them. The second is similar in genre, and has to do with Article 36 of the Belgic and Westminster Confession 23. I fear that there are some points um, that are clear in the Confessions which are being sidestepped, which are being ignored. What I have in mind in Article 36 of the Belgic, everyone, again, everyone agrees that the Belgic was changed in the in in the 19 oh let's see 1906 I think in the Netherlands 1910 here in America to excise from the Belgic the claim that the government is called, the state is called to uh, enforce uh, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God and uh, to enforce the uh, Christian religion. That being agreed, however, the confession, which was not changed, continues to say their office, the office of the state, is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also to protect the sacred ministry and the kingdom of Christ, uh, that the kingdom of Christ may be promoted. That's hardly a neutral position vis-a-vis the church, the Christian church and the Christian gospel. The Bible teaches, the confessions echo the Bible in claiming it is the government's job to protect the sacred ministry and thus to promote the kingdom of Christ. Whatever you want to do with that, however you wish to interpret that in a pluralistic, democratic, 21st century society, is question number two. I appeal also to Westminster 23, 23, paragraph 3. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments. We all agree. The power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We all agree or in the least interfere in matters of faith. We all agree. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. 
Now that I, I, I stopped reading halfway through. Um, <clears throat> that suggests, for example, that when ministers preach regarding uh, the, the lifestyle and the activities of homosexuals as being contrary to Scripture, uh, the government must protect that as um, not necessarily free speech, but as the exercise of religion. And uh, we need to, uh, as Christians, I think, sound that claim and that duty in the public square. And uh, if we don't sound it, I fear that we are going to we're going to cede, that is, we're going to hand over um, the right, the authority, the freedom of the church, uh, so to preach and so to teach. So, again, I'm asking my conversation partners to do business with what I read and understand to be uh, confessional claims regarding the, state, the state's duty to protect the church and protect the sacred ministry. Um, and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, third, so that's my second comment of seven. My third comment of seven, um, I wish to interact with Dr. Dennison regarding the Ten Commandments and the public life. Um, he was very uh, clear, I think, and he was very um, vigorous in his uh, suggestion that uh, he finds uh, nothing in the Bible suggesting that the civil government is required to enforce the Ten Commandments. He thinks Calvin is wrong about the application of ten, the Ten Commandments universally to civil government, and part of that is because we no longer live in the world, a world of Christendom. And um, I, I demur from that. I agree with Dr. Dennison that, that the law is treated in the context of redemption and redemptive grace. He says that. He claims that in our confessions, the law is always treated in the context of redemptive grace. My, my comment pertaining to that would be to say yes, because because the confessions are the church's language and the church's address to itself and to God, and that the church in its confessions isn't so concerned to stipulate certain things with regard to the use and function of the law vis-a-vis -vis the state. However, I return to my prior comments about uh, Westminster Confession and Belgic Confession, suggesting that the state is obligated to protect the church and, and thus promote the kingdom of God. I I don't know how that could be done apart from some version of the Ten Commandments being recognized and integrated in some fashion in civil order and civil polity. Um, the whole matter of morality and immorality, stealing, adultery, marriage, property rights, etc. Um, I, I don't know how one can defend that apart from um, some version of the Ten Commandments. And that relates, incidentally, as well to the first table of the law. Dr. Hart was puzzled when I used um, the phrase, um, recognize, that the government is called to, to acknowledge and recognize the first table, but not necessarily enforce that. And he wondered and was puzzled by that kind of a distinction. Um, he he doesn't understand where one gets the biblical basis to say the government is called to recognize but not enforce. Well, um, my my response to that, I'm trying to use a distinction which allows uh, what I think the Belgic has solved and resolved for us, namely to take out the sentence that calls the government to enforce the Christian religion 
we we agree in our day and age that that is not the government's calling. But it is still the calling of the government to recognize the Christian religion. So I, I appeal to Belgic 36 and the very words, and I wish my interlocutors would, would discuss those very words of the confession where I think that distinction is maintained and upheld and defensible. So I'll leave it there. Number four, um, I, I really appreciate Dr. Dennison's comments on eschatology. Uh, he spent a good deal of time discussing his uneasiness with the paradigm that uses continuity of human cultural activity in the new heavens and the new earth. He makes reference to Westminster Confession, Belgic Confession, and so forth, and in that connection to 2 Peter 3, 10 to 11, Revelation 21, verses 24 and 26. Let me say, first of all, one of the reasons I appreciate his comments is the his attempt to root his analysis in biblical, in scriptural text. And uh, though we may uh, differ at points, I, I take his caution seriously that we, um, that we not have a, a kind of a triumphalistic continuity which sees every accomplishment of the human race in history as carrying over into the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I... Uh, his caution is well taken, and I, I want to be careful, therefore, how I speak about that continuity. And I, I would, in response, issue an, another alert. And that alert is to beware. I think we're, we must beware of incipient Gnosticism, by which I mean that there is such a discontinuity between contemporary history, the history of the human race, and eternity, that we really have two different worlds, two separate worlds. I don't mean different in the sense of dis, uh, differentiated, but I mean separate. I wish to hold out for um, the the some form of human history and its maturation, its its results, purified, thoroughly sanitized, and cleansed from all residue and effects of sin as being taken up in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, the Bible does say in Revelation 21, verses 24 and 26, that the kings of the earth will render tribute, and uh, the nations of the earth will bring glory. Now, I don't mean to, I don't wish to expand that to include all the accomplishments of statecraft and art and culture, etc., but I do want to recognize that these are kings who are coming into the new heavens and the new earth, and these are nations that are bringing the whatever, the glory, even if it's worship, and even if it's adoration to the Lamb, um, there, in other words, the structures that obtained in creation seem to me to obtain in the new heavens and the new earth as well. So to Dr. Dennison's position, I would raise the question and the alert as to whether discontinuity has not overcome and displaced continuity. Those are the great questions always, in my judgment, in theology and in the Christian and Reformed uh, understanding. So, with appreciation to Dr. Dennison, I would just offer those, those comments. Um, number five, my fifth comment. Um, I have thought for a long time um, that we need to uh, invoke, we need to come to an expression of, an articulation of a doctrine of the Church, reflecting on the Church as organism and the Church as institution. I refer here to uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, page 567. I want to make some comments about this in connection with our discussion, because I'm going to, in a moment, turn to 
the corporate nature of the covenant and the, the church as covenant community, both of which are uh, arise in Dr. Dennison's comments and Dr. Hart's comments. So I want to preface my response to them both by outlining and expressing a doctrine of the church's organism. Um, you see, this, this distinction applies to the visible church, and it applies to various aspects of the visible church. Um, there, the institutional side of the church comes to expression in its offices, like minister, pastor, elders, and deacons, in the administration of the word and the sacraments, in certain form of church government. All of that attends to what we call the church as institution. However, there is, aside from, or in addition, distinct from these uh, manifestations, there's also the communal life of the church in the world. The communal life of the church in the world is not the invisible church. This is the church as an organism. To use a Latin phrase, it is the coitus or the citus fidelium, the communion of believers united in the bond of the Spirit. The church as institution, says Berkhoff, is the mater fidelium, the mother of believers, whereas the church's organism is the coitus or the citus fidelium, the communion of believers. Now, I think the value of this distinction and this doctrine is that we may understand Christians living and working in the world as a community, not under or not um, not accountable to the institutional church per se, but certainly motivated by, nourished and nurtured by, and, and uh, guided by the institutional church. I have in mind, and now I'm going to, with that doctrine of the church as organism, turn to the matter in the sixth place of Christian education. Dr. Dennison, um, very uh, surprisingly and rather bluntly, is he demurs from homeschooling. He, he doesn't like homeschooling because he says it, uh, it's built on the individual rights of the family, the covenant is transferred to the individual, and the, what he claims is that the corporate understanding of the covenant suffers. I'm very, um, uh, very alert, uh, nervous about this notion of the corporate understanding of the covenant because this is what I have seen it mean in some Christian communities. It has been said to mean that because of the corporate nature of the covenant, the church as covenant community ought to be taking offerings for and supporting tuition payments of parents. And I find that to be a mixture of domains, a conflict of spheres, a, an unfortunate, an unfortunate um, use of the church by those involved in Christian education a usage of convenience, perhaps, um, given subsequent doctrinal uh, dressing, namely the corporate nature of the covenant. I think that um, I think that we can uphold the corporate nature and understanding of the covenant with the doctrine of the church's organism, where parents who are propelled and motivated by the pulpit form together um, associations or societies whose purpose is to furnish uh, education, Christian education, to their children. That is corporate, that is communal, that is body life in the world. Um, in distinction from Dr. Hart, um, he seems to equate uh, the, the, the church activity and covenant community, so that, for example, uh, matters of liberty of conscience, matters of church discipline, 
certainly apply to the activity of the church as institution, as institute. But uh, he, he fails, it seems to me, adequately to take into account the function and life of the church as organism, whereby, historically anyway, matters of discipline did not obtain. Let me give you an example of this. I've served in the pastorate for a number of years and uh, in congregations where there was a strong support uh, morally and personally and financially for Christian day school education. At no point, never, was a person disciplined out of the church or placed under discipline who sent his children or her children to public school. In other words, though there is a, there is a, a moral um, uh, advice, a moral um, advantage, and a moral um, encouragement to parents to organize and support Christian day school education, it was not placed on the level of membership in the Church of Jesus Christ or membership in Christ himself. And I think, therefore, that we cannot or should not identify the covenant community with the institutional church, because then we're short-circuiting this organic or church-as-organism um, activity. Dr. Hart, for example, says that he doesn't see the need for lines to be drawn outside the covenant community. Well, I, 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 I demur, I, I, I disagree respectfully with that, to suggest that Christians ought to, um, insofar as they're able, band together to give a communal testimony on issues of moral import in our culture today. I'm thinking, for example, of the public and social uh, wrong of abortion. And I believe, contrary to many evangelicals and fellow believers, that the Church's Christian testimony ought not to consist of democratically legal activities like rallies and sidewalk handholding and abortion clinic protesting, but the Christian answer is mercy, compassion, shepherding homes, and uh, opportunities that give hope to mothers who seem to be driven to desperation to the point of killing their unborn children. That's the Christian answer, and I find that Indeed, there are lines to be drawn outside the covenant community by the covenant community in the public square. I used abortion as an example. I would use a similar case and argument for homosexual marriage, and I would use a similar argument and case with regard to the nature of education, Christian education in particular. So I, I find that Dr. Hart's unfortunate equation of church activity with the covenant community to, to really be the, the weak spot here. Um, all right, that's my sixth comment. I have one more to go. And uh, this is sort of a, a, a poke, a challenge, and it has to do with Cornelius Van Til. I, uh, I would like to invoke uh, the name uh, and the teaching of Cornelius Van Til in regard to this whole matter of Christianity and culture uh, particularly now on the question of the Bible. I, I'm In my last couple of years of studying and writing and speaking on this matter, I am, I'm deeply puzzled by the, um, oh, shall I say, the silence uh, in, in, in Reformed quarters of the testimony to the question of natural law and two kingdoms to the testimony of Cornelius and Till, who said that he says the Bible um, is uh, the center 
of a seminary curriculum, not only, but he says the Bible is at the center not only of every course, but of the curriculum as a whole. The Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, here's the, here's the, um, here's the money quote, moreover, it speaks of everything. Now, he goes on to say, we do not mean that it speaks of football or atoms directly. Note that adverb directly. But we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. And I guess that's where I find myself most at home. Uh, over the years, I have been urging, in connection with the so-called theonomy question, Christian Reconstruction question, um, and and the opponents and answers to it, I've been arguing that the question isn't whether the Bible is relevant to public life and ought to be used. The question is how. How? And Ventil gives us this helpful adverb, directly or by implication. I would submit that that, as he did, the Bible is relevant to every area and every activity and every domain of life. The great and grand question is how. So, you know, our, our discussion, and now I offer this conclusion, our, our discussion has been on the relationship between Christ and culture, Christianity and culture. I, I readily admit these questions are complex, that I don't have the... Uh, the full, even the final answer. I, I want us to continue discussing this, um, but at the same time, I am very concerned that this discussion not lead the church either into a mode of of quietism, whereby Christians are led to say, "Well, you know what those people do in Washington, or what those people do in the Supreme Court, or in the halls of Congress, or even in the public school corridors doesn't concern me. I'm going to heaven. They're not probably, and uh, I'll uh, I'll just make sure I keep my garden weeded here. I, I want us to avoid that because I think the Christian gospel, particularly anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is so creation affirming. And it is so history-affirming that Christians need to see their calling, their vocation, as participating with God, as co-workers with God, in the, in the history of this world and in the history of our day, of our generation. And uh, they ought to be reading newspapers alongside, not on top of, but alongside their Bibles. And they ought to be watching the television news alongside of listening to sermons. Or, as I tell my students, in a very provocative illustration, eating Fritos is just as spiritual as reading your Bible. By which I mean to say that all of life is spiritual because all of life is lived coram Deo, before the face of God. And uh, I think, I find the tradition that's dubbed neo-Calvinism, if it's cleaned up a bit, if it's uh, prettied up a little bit in terms of some of the excesses in previous generations, and by the way, I'm hopeful that that such is being done, I find that that, that tradition and that school of thought um, offers us some real uh, tools for real Christian engagement in, in the real world. So... That's, uh, I think that's where I'll leave it, and uh, I'm very appreciative to you and to the others for this conversation and the opportunity. I think it's been a great exercise. I hope it's been 
um, helpful. If I may, if I may recommend one more thing, um, and this is a, a book difficult to read as it was to translate, and that is the book by Klaus Skilder entitled Christ and Culture. I have uh, I, I have to acknowledge my indebtedness to to Skilder in terms of his understanding of history, his understanding of vocation. It's not easy going. I hope personally, uh, Lord willing, to be able to do a little bit more work in this book in terms of perhaps uh, offering a, a fresh and annotated translation of it, if God grants that. But I would recommend it, and I would commend it to your readers, particularly particularly his, uh, his doctrine of abstaining from culture. That may sound contradictory to what we've been saying, but Skilder makes a point that there may come a time, given the resources and given the crisis nature of history where the church is located, where God's people simply seem, may have to back off for a time from pursuing cultural uh, engagement for the sake of self-preservation and for the sake of... Uh, but, but such abstaining from culture at no point and in no way denies the validity of cultural engagement but it's simply a matter of prioritizing our resources and allocating them in a way that's responsible. And in that connection, then, um, Richard Mao has written and published an article on Skilder as public theologian, which is available in a Calvin Theological Journal some years back, and uh, that will give you the kind of orientation that I'm suggesting here. So with that, I will, uh, I will conclude my comments. And this brings an end to Dr. Klosterman's remarks, but he did have an announcement that he wanted us to pass on, so with that, I'll include this little clip from Dr. Klosterman. Well, you may be aware that um, at the close of this calendar year, I will be transitioning into uh, a new Mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Uh, My organization is called Worldview Resources International. Oh, great. And I I hope to be uh, interfacing and networking with uh, people like you, with organizations like you, and... Mm -hmm. uh, and if you care to include this uh, little self, shameless self-promotion in, ahead. The, in the MP3, I would appreciate it. Sure. Uh, but I'm seeking here to, to really give people access to Christian doctrine with boots on. Thank you for listening to this installment of our Christ and Culture discussion. And let us know what you think by emailing us at mail at reformedforum.org or twittering us at reformedforum. And again, Christ the Center is listener-supported, and please help us continue to produce content just like this by sending our donations to Reformed Forum at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you for listening. And we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.